0: But we've gotten all of the holiday cheer and goodwill toward men out of the way, so let's talk about the best and worst movies of 2022. Hello everybody, I'm Dan Merle here with my listing of what, for SEO reasons, I call the best and worst of 2022, but which are really, as with every critics list, a breakdown of my favorite and least favorite movies of the year. I think it's actually been a pretty good year for movies, except for, ironically, when we got to the end of the year with a lot of the awards contenders. There were several of them, like Babylon and Empire of Light, that just didn't live up to expectations, and there were other ones, like The Fablemans, that many other people love but that I didn't, and that really opened up a space for a lot of very odd movies, I think, in my top 10. So I'll be picking my top 10 favorite movies, my top five least favorite movies, but before we get to that, I always have some superlatives, some other awards that I like to give out, just some fun stuff to recap the year in movies. If you wanna jump to any part of this show, I'll have time codes down in the description, so if you don't wanna do all this silly stuff, you can jump ahead to the worst movies or least favorite movies of the year. And the first award that I wanna give out is called Biggest Surprise. It's the movie that really was a surprise for me that I didn't really expect much out of, but that I pleasantly enjoyed. The runner-up for this award was Chippendale Rescue Rangers on Disney Plus. I know it's counted as an Emmy Award movie in the award circles, but it's a movie, come on. I expected next to nothing out of this. I wasn't even really a big fan of the show when it was on the air when I was a kid, but this was a really funny movie. One of the year's funniest comedies, and if you haven't checked it out, it's really, really entertaining. But my winner for this is Smile, which looked like the most generic horror movie I've ever Ever seen, I wasn't even gonna go see it, but then I heard that it was all right, and it actually turned out to be a pretty well-crafted thriller. Yes, it uses some of the horror conventions that a lot of the other movies do, but I also thought that it was really well constructed and actually kind of psychologically rich on a character level. So that was my biggest surprise of the year. My next award is called the Where's Act 3 award, and it's for the movie that really stopped the story when things were getting the most interesting. My runner-up for this award is Don't Worry Darling, which really just ended right where where the end of the second act should have been and we just don't really get any payoff for anything in that movie. But the movie that wins is one that actually had a substituted act three that I think ruined the whole movie and that's Halloween Ends. Yes it was doing something really crazy for the first two acts but then it completely abandons it and goes with the conventional ending that I think everybody expected. It feels like there was something a lot more bold that the producers and directors wanted to do and instead they just kind of chickened out and gave us what we got. The next award is for most accurate title. The runner-up is the movie Dog, which was, in fact, largely about a dog. And the winner is Women Talking. This is a highly acclaimed award season movie. I think you're going to see a lot of nominations in the writing and acting categories. But it is also, as the title describes, almost entirely about women talking. And if we are excommunicated, we forfeit our place in heaven. How could any of you live with the fear of that? These are legitimate fears. This is a bit of an overlap with the Academy Awards, but my next award is for best original song, and it goes to Apartment for Sale from Tar, which if you haven't seen the movie, is the MVP music choice in a movie about classical music. Next up is the award for Worst Use of POV, or Point of View. The runner-up and a late entry into the race was Babylon, which gave us a ground-up view into an elephant's butthole while it took a poop on somebody. But the winner, and this really could not have been supplanted, was Blonde. Blonde promised us to give us a look inside Marilyn Monroe as we had never seen before, and it certainly delivered on that aspect. Lots more to come about that movie later on. Our next category is an adorable category. It is Best Movie Pet. The runner-up and a serious contender is Jenny, the little tiny donkey from the Banshees of Anna Sharon, which really stole a lot of the movie, but the winner is the dog from Prey. I cared as much or more about that dog making it through the movie as I did the main character making it through the movie, the Best Movie Pet of the Year. There are awards for best acting and worst acting and you may see those later on in the show but this is the award for the most acting and that award goes to Olivia Coleman in Empire of Light. The movie didn't live up to expectations but it sure did have a lot of acting in it and most of it was done by Olivia Coleman who definitely gave the most performance of the year. You need to take responsibility you for you your gotta- This is a returning category from last year. It's the movie that sounds like a parody, but isn't. Basically, a movie that sounds like it's something that somebody would make up to describe something that a pretentious film person would like to watch, but is actually a movie that is in existence. Last year, the winner was Drive My Car. This year, the winner is Utama, which is a Bolivian film about elderly llama herders who are fighting increased drought and the loss of their farm due to climate change. Yes, I know this sounds like something that eight people on NPR would recommend to you, but this is actually a really, really good movie. It brings you into a world that you may have never experienced before or even thought about before, but yes, it also sounds like a parody of something that a snobby film person would tell you to watch. Sorry. Next up is the award for most valuable performance, and it goes to Austin Butler in Elvis. The fact that he was so good as Elvis Presley was able to distract us from the fact that Baz Luhrmann was doing whatever the hell Baz Luhrmann does in every single movie that he makes. And of course from Tom Hanks as the Penguin. Let's be honest, if Austin Butler wasn't playing Elvis or if he was half as good, Elvis the movie would have imploded on itself like a dying dwarf star. Instead, it was a really good movie that I quite enjoyed based largely on the fact that he was so great in the film. Yeah, you still have your claws on me. you still have me working here like a goddamn slave in a salt mine. You phony, no good piece of trash. This is another returning category from last year. It's the best performance in a movie that you didn't see, and there's actually a tie in this category. The first winner is John Boyega in the movie Breaking, which is not getting any awards attention, but it really showed me something that I had never seen, a side of him as an actor that I didn't quite know that he was capable of. I need a phone call. Brian. You have my undivided attention. I don't need your undivided attention. I need the attention of the VA. Last year, the winner in this category was Rebecca Hall in the movie The Nighthouse. This year, the other winner in this category is Rebecca Hall in the movie Resurrection. Rebecca Hall really does seem to be fated to turning in incredible performance in really small indie horror movies that nobody sees. I didn't like Resurrection, the movie, as much as I liked The Nighthouse, but boy, Rebecca Hall sure was great in it. Next up is the award for best performance that never had a chance, which means it's a performance that I think is one of the best of the year, but never had a shot at being nominated for any kind of mainstream award, and that is Mia Goth in Pearl. One of the best acting performances of the year in a movie that the Academy probably would never even watch if you paid them, and I think some of them are being paid, but that's neither here nor there. It is an incredible performance, and yet another example that there is genre bias in award season voting, because I will put Mia Goth's performance in Pearl up against any of the other Academy Award nominees, and I think that it would compare favorably. I mean, you could give her an award for the end credit sequence alone. I mean, I don't even think Brendan Fraser could say that. Next up is the award for worst performance. Last year, I gave this award to Jared Leto and House of Gucci, but it's okay, Jared, because you didn't win the award this year. You were the runner-up. The runner-up for worst performance is Jared Leto in Morbius, which was a true misfire that everybody waited like three years to see. But the winner of worst performance is Michael Keaton in Morbius. I know, he only is in the movie for about 30 seconds, but it is one of the perhaps literally most phoned-in performances that i've ever seen in a movie i'm still figuring this place out but i think a bunch of guys like us should team up could do some good it's not about quantity it's about quality and michael keaton one of my favorite actors by the way unfortunately takes the prize this year i'm not sure how i got here has to do with spider-man i think Next up is the award for best franchise horror movie with the same name as an earlier film in the franchise. The winner is Scream. It came out early in January 2022. Of course, we're already getting a sequel in early 2023. This movie could have gone bad in a lot of ways, but I actually really enjoyed it, unlike the movie that won the next award, which is worst franchise horror movie with the same name as an earlier film in the franchise, and that is Netflix's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't want to quibble about these and whether there's a the the or not the the. They knew what they were doing, and I really disliked this movie. It may not necessarily be the worst horror movie that I saw this year, but I think it did the worst job of living up to the legacy of the originals and some of the even worse movies that came after it. Truly just an unenjoyable film. Next up is the Goofus and Gallant award, and if you don't know who Goofus and Gallant are, then you're probably of an age where you didn't have to sit and read Highlights magazine at the waiting room when you went to see the doctor as a kid. Goofus and Gallant were these cartoon characters, it was like, here's how you do it and here's how you don't do it and we had a great example this year because we had disney's remake of Pinocchio, the goofus of Pinocchio movies this year, truly just a terrible film, a terrible Disney remake of their own movie. And then we had Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, the gallant of Pinocchio movies, the one that showed the promise of what Pinocchio movies could be. I don't know if there was a plan to make these movies come out the same year, but it is a pretty big blow to Disney to make the worst movie about a character that they themselves made the most popular version of in the same year. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is great. Disney's Pinocchio is not. Not at all. Next up is an award called Best Movie That You Didn't Watch. And I can honestly name about 10 or 15 movies. But I'm picking this one because it's actually pretty easily accessible. It's streaming on Netflix right now here in the U.S. And that is Emily the Criminal, which is another movie I saw out of Sundance that stars Aubrey Plaza. Another movie where I think that her performance could be up for awards consideration. It's just that there are so many movies now. If you're scrolling through Netflix and you've already seen Glass Onion and all the other stuff that they put out, and you're just looking for, like, a really solid 90-minute movie then you should check out Emily the Criminal because I don't think you're gonna be disappointed. Finally, I have the awards for the 2022 MVP actor and MVP actress. Last year, I only gave this award to Andrew Garfield, but there were actually two outstanding people that I wanted to give it to. The 2022 MVP actor is Colin Farrell, who really did it all this year. He talked about tea, interestingly, in A24's After Yang. There's no language for it. No, there are no words to adequately express the mysterious nature of tea. He was a fantastic penguin in the Batman and maybe the comedic highlight of the movie. Look at you two, world's greatest detectives. Am I the only one here knows the difference between Al and Law? Jesus, no habla espanol? And then he gave maybe the best performance of his career, which may well lead to his first Oscar nomination in the Banshees of Inisharren. To our graves we're taking this. To one of our graves anyways. Colin Farrell is one of those actors that shockingly has become incredibly versatile over his career. And this year really proved just how many different things he can do. It may be a sneaky MVP winner, but I think that he's a deserving one. Do you know who we remember for how nice they was in the 17th century? Who? Absolutely no one. Yet we all remember the music of the time. Everyone to a man knows Mozart's name. If I don't, there goes that theory. And finally, we have the 2022 MVP actress, and that is Jenna Ortega. I didn't know who she was before I saw her in Scream earlier this year. She popped up in a memorable role in X. She was in a small role in Studio 666. She gave a great performance in The Fallout, which was released on HBO Max earlier this year. None of us should have died. I'm having a really hard time moving on. And then she ended the year with Wednesday, which is becoming quickly the most watched show of 2022 on Netflix. It is already by my metrics, if you don't watch Charts with Dan, uh, but it is smashing viewership records. It has really been, uh, when you talk about breakout year, a breakout year for Jenna Ortega, and I've actually loved her in everything that I've seen her in. So I'm looking forward to her as she moves ahead. I'm sure she's going to be very busy going forward in the next two, three, four, five years, and it's going to be an interesting development to her career. Where are you going? Ask again and you'll be down to eight lives. All right, so with all of the other awards out of the way, let's get to my picks for the best and worst, or my favorite and least favorite of 2022. And let's get the unpleasantness out of the way first. Let's talk about my five least favorite films of the year. There was actually some pretty healthy competition, so I really had to go with the ones that I think were the most disappointing, or the ones that just made me the angriest. And at number five is one that was both disappointing and a waste of a good premise, and a good cast, and made me angry, and that would be Jurassic World Dominion. You had all of the original people back, and you didn't even make most of the movie about dinosaurs. It was about locusts, and then there's some dinosaurs here and some dinosaurs there. What a weird choice. Seems like you could have just made the movie that everybody wanted to see, Dinosaurs in the Real World, and they were like, but what if it was another park and there were bugs? I don't know what the decision-making behind that was, but it was a really disappointing movie in a franchise that I honestly didn't think it'd disappoint me anymore. He's exploiting your enchantment with these. At number four is a movie that I mentioned a couple of other times, and again, a lot of it may just be the buildup, a lot of it may be the high that we were all coming off of from Spider-Man No Way Home, and that is Morbius, which took us back to the glory days of 2002 to remind us what just a really poorly executed comic book movie could be. There was really nothing interesting in this movie, except for like the times when Matt Smith was able to do something weird that I guess he was trying to keep himself awake on set, but it was the most bland, most unintelligible in many ways. I didn't care about the plot, maybe it was really reshot, maybe it wasn't reshot. Nobody really cared about Morbius. And what's hilarious is that somehow the studio was manipulated into releasing it twice because they thought that because people were making memes in the movie that people would actually go see the movie. You can make a lot of excuses for people not going to different movies for the last couple years. I think people didn't go see Morbius because it was terrible and nobody cared about it. Case closed. At number three is a movie that I already mentioned, which is Texas Chainsaw Massacre on Netflix. They tried to do that thing where, like, you update the story by making the people like, oh, uh, they're influencers. Try anything and you cancel, bro. I don't expect these things to be masterpieces, but I at least expect them to be somewhat interesting. And in a year of great horror, Texas Chainsaw Massacre stood out even more by how much it was phoned in. At number two is another film in the horror genre, a remake of a Stephen King movie, and that's Firestarter, which was even more boring. Zac Efron looked like he was going to fall asleep uh, throughout most of the movie. And again, the question has to be asked, why? Why would you remake a movie that nobody was asking for? It's like when they remade Carrie. No need to remake Firestarter, and I think the market spoke on that one. Liar, liar. Hands on fire. (laughs) The movie at number one, by far my least favorite movie of 2022 was at one point a huge awards contender, but which sort of fell off the pace because of the extremely polarizing reaction and that is Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe faux biopic that really didn't do a good job of telling you about the faux part starring Anna de Armas. I can't really fault her because I guess her performance was all right. I really have to fault the writing and the direction because Blonde really does beg the question, at what point are you depicting misogyny and at what point are you just being misogynistic? And even aside from that, this just seemed like a movie that reveled in the misery of Marilyn Monroe that was looking to degrade her at every opportunity, to make her look weak and pathetic, and I don't care what they said about the fact that, oh, it's based on this, it's based on that. I saw contempt for the character of Marilyn Monroe in Blonde, and I disliked just about every single minute of the movie. I thought it was exploitative, I thought it was gross, and it wasn't even interesting. It was the same thing over and over and over again, so it wasn't even interesting from a story standpoint I really just kind of detested this movie, and I understand that there are defenders of it, but I also am not one of them. I hated Blonde. I would watch any of these other movies before I would watch it. And Blonde also had that thing that so many of the other awards movies this year had, which was that it was like 245, three hours long. So many awards movies now are that length, and now other movies are starting to creep up to that length. You can make a solid movie at like 90, 100 minutes. Some movies need to be longer, but not all of them. Not every movie needs to be longer. Blonde was certainly a movie that I wish was about half as long or maybe like 10 minutes long. I will never watch this movie again, and it is my pick for the worst of 2022. You won't hurt me this time, will you? Not do what you did the last time? But let's get rid of that rubbish and talk about my favorite movies of the year, and as I mentioned earlier, even though some of the awards contenders fell short, there were some really great movies this year. So I have a lot of honorable mentions. These were all movies that were either in contention of my top 10 or that I really, really enjoyed. So alphabetically, Barbarian in A Year of Great Horror, a really surprising, funny, original horror movie. The Batman, which was a great take on my favorite comic book character with some great performances. The Black Phone, it was a great summer for horror. I loved this one with Ethan Hawke, from Scott Derrickson. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies from A24. I know some people didn't really like it and not a whole lot of people saw it, but I thought that it was really fun and funny. Bones and All, which was a serious contender for my top 10 list from Luca Guadagnino. I thought that Timothy Chalamet and especially Taylor Russell were great in this movie. Breaking, which I already mentioned, starring John Boyega. And then Emily the Criminal, which I mentioned, starring Aubrey Plaza. Two movies that I saw at Sundance that I think were great feature roles for their stars. Fire of Love, which is my favorite documentary of the year i'm rooting for it to get an academy award nomination fresh which is a hulu original film here in the u.s starring sebastian stan and daisy edgar jones what a great funny disgusting awful wonderful movie if you haven't seen it glass onion and knives out mystery i don't think that it measured up to the original but i still enjoyed the sequel thanks mostly to daniel craig who i think continues to crush it as benoit blanc I don't care what you say, Jackass Forever. It's the most that I laughed in a movie this year. You can look down your nose at me. You can invalidate everything else I said. I enjoyed the hell out of Jackass Forever, and you bet it's going to my honorable mentions, right next to Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, which I liked for very different kind of existential reasons. It was another big contender for my top ten list. And in addition to a really strong year in animated features, The Menu, which came out later in the year, is another movie that I really enjoyed. I didn't review it here on the channel, but I thought that. It was a great script with a lot of great performances, a fantastic ensemble in that movie. Jordan Peele's Nope, it didn't quite come together as well as a lot of his other movies did for me, but I loved the style and I loved a lot of the pieces of the movie, including the performances. The Northman, another movie that I thought was unlike anything else that I had seen this year with an underrated supporting turn from Nicole Kidman. Prey, which is another Hulu original, I enjoyed it the most out of any Predator sequel. I know that a lot of people like Predator 2 and some of the other ones. I thought that this was the only one that approached what was great about the first film. Speak No Evil, which is a really nasty little horror film. Uh, It's a Dutch movie that if you love horror, I think it's streaming on Shudder right now. It really goes to some places you don't think that it's gonna go. Turning Red from Pixar, I think it should have been in theaters. I really liked this movie, and again, it was a contender for my top 10 list. The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Nick Cage is great in this movie. Pedro Pascal is equally as great, and it had me laughing a lot. Utama, which I mentioned, sounds like a parody of a movie that a film snob would love, but I think If you are into, like I said, going to a world that you may have never even thought existed, it is a very empathetic movie. You empathize with people whose existence you may have never even considered. And then Vengeance, which is the directorial debut of BJ Novak, a crime, comedy, drama featuring, and I never thought I would say this, an outstanding supporting performance from Ashton Kutcher. If you haven't seen Vengeance, you're going to laugh. It's going to be a bit of a mystery, and it also has some stuff to say about, you know, the world that we live in. We do live in a world, and Vengeance has some thoughts on that world. So those are the honorable mentions, all great movies, but let's get to the 10 that with a lot of difficulty, I picked as my 10 favorite of the year, with the caveat that there are still several movies from 2022 that I'm still trying to see. Maybe one of them could sneak onto this list, but at some point you gotta just call it quits and make the video. At number 10 on my list is Triangle of Sadness. It won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival last year. And it is a movie that is about class, but doesn't feel like one of those message movies that's about class like you've seen before. We spend a lot of the movie on a luxury yacht where we see these various different characters, how they interact with each other, how people treat quote-unquote the help. And then the movie takes a turn, and the dynamics change completely. And it was one of the most interesting turns in a movie That I've seen in quite some time. We work on a yacht. You are a toilet manager. You don't know how to handle this yacht. If you want to see a movie that is about class, but doesn't feel like it's a drag or that it's preaching at you, but that you're actually writing smart characters who are able to get that message across in a funny and intelligent and intriguing way, then you should try out Triangle of Sadness, my number 10 movie of the year. At number nine is a movie that I've been talking about since way back in January. And honestly, if some of the quote-unquote prestige or awards movies had delivered, it may not have made its way onto the list, but I was happy that there was a spot for it. And that's Brian and Charles, which is a tiny little comedy about a Welsh man who builds his own robot who's named Charles. And it's really just about the relationship between those two. You built my body. I built his body. I built his body, it took 72 hours. my tummy is a washing machine. And his tummy is a washing machine. The movie is directed by Jim Archer, the screenplay is by David Earl and Chris Hayward, and I laughed so much. It's weird, it's goofy, it's silly, it's all the things that I like in a comedy, and it's one of those smaller movies that a lot of times would be in that honorable mention, but as I was going over everything, I was like, you know, I just, I keep going back to this movie, and that's kind of a criteria, especially as I get up to the earlier parts of my list, not just movies that I liked, what are the movies that I went back to in my head, that I kept thinking about, that I was thinking about this character, this joke, this plot, etc., that's kind of what delineates the honorable mention from the top ten for me, and Brian and Charles is a really silly little comedy that I thought about a lot. I want to go in the front, Brian. You're not old enough to go in the front. I want you in the back. Stop saying front. Front, 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 front 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 At number 8 is a movie that I saw a while ago and that I've really been sitting and processing and chewing on for about a month. But it's actually pretty good timing because it hits Netflix this week on December 30th. It's Noah Baumbach's latest film and it's called White Noise, which is about a family in the 1980s who have to deal with a crisis, but it is really about all of these individual characters and their life and their philosophies. Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig play the parents. They're both great- great. Adam Driver, though, is just... I love everything this guy does. He was in what I named my favorite movie last year, which is Annette. Anytime I see him in a movie, I I like what he's doing. I just find him to be an intensely interesting actor. So I guess me and John Oliver are in the Adam Driver fan club, although in very different ways. Uh, But I think that he really carries this movie along with Greta Gerwig. They're an interesting couple. And again, it's this sort of intellectual thing that could be isolating. I found that with some of Noah Baumbach's films in the past that he writes intellectual characters in a way that kind of makes you feel like you're on the outside looking in. That's not how I felt in this movie. They do feel very relatable and it's also very bizarre. And it also has the feel of like 70s Close Encounters Spielberg 80s John Hughes vacation. Uh, It's such a weird mix of things, which is why I was kind of piecing it over in my head. But I I really, really ended up liking it a lot. I, I can't wait to return to it. And just because of how I kept thinking about it and how interesting it was, it had to go on the list, and it's there at number eight. No, it won't come this way. How do you know? When there's a wind this time of year, it blows that way, not this way. What if it blows this way? It won't. But well, what if just this one time? It won't. Why should it? At number seven is a movie that I talked about earlier in the Goofus and Gallon Award, which is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. How many times has Pinocchio been told? I think there were like three or four Pinocchio movies this year. So this could have just been another rote recitation of the Pinocchio story, maybe with a little bit of style, but this is Guillermo del Toro that we're talking about. So of course he took the Pinocchio story and made it wholly his own i did a whole review for this on the channel already but i loved not just the style of the movie it's a beautiful movie and i love stop motion animation i love that there are so many people that still devote their lives to it because it is such meticulous work but you can see that craftsmanship and the advances that they've made over the years but it's not just the style it's the substance of the movie guillermo del toro takes the movie and puts it into world war ii or the rise of fascism and again it's not like we're making direct allegories to our situation today. Today, but you see those different parallels and it's very interesting the way that he weaves that into the movie This doesn't feel like Guillermo del Toro kind of lending his name to an adaptation This feels like what it is, which is Guillermo del Toro's next film I think it's the best animated film of the year and I think that it is the front-runner for the Academy Award for good reason My name is Panocchio Oh, Pinocchio! I love the smell of onions! <laughs> I love. At number six is the biggest movie of the year, unless the Na'vi really catch fire, and that is Top Gun Maverick. I know that there are a lot of people, it seems like, who look at big movies and for some reason disqualify them from being one of the best movies of the year. Well, I can say that Top Gun Maverick is what this list is about, which was one of my favorite movies of the year. And I often will find a place for large movies on my top 10 list. Avengers Endgame was on there. Spider-Man No Way Home is on there. Top Gun Maverick is on there. There's a reason why blockbuster cinema does well financially. It's not just IP based. It's because these movies tap into something that makes people want to go see them not just once but two or three or four or five times and that's exactly what Top Gun Maverick had and by the way the craftsmanship behind this film if you want to kind of poo-poo the idea that it's a sequel and Tom Cruise etc the cinematography the work that went into the authenticity and the flight sequences is stunning it's some of the best filmmaking that's been done of any size this year on top of all that you have an actually good story you've got strong performances you have great action sequences i love the whole thing where you got to fly through the canyon and go over the mountain and say yeah it's basically star wars but there's a reason that star wars worked because it was basically a bunch of other things that worked before it top gun maverick was a great time in the theaters i went and saw it twice in imx i loved it both times i've got it on 4k i'll probably watch it within the next two or three months i enjoyed the hell out of this movie so why wouldn't it be on my top 10 list who's the better pilot you or me This is a nice moment, let's not ruin it. At number five is a movie that's very different from Top Gun Maverick. It's a film out of South Korea from acclaimed director Park Chan-wook, and that is Decision to Leave. This was another thinker, and I honestly, right after I watched it, didn't see it being in my top five favorite movies of the year. But I have thought about this movie so much since I saw it. And I think that it has two lead characters that are the two most interesting leads maybe in any movie this year, except for maybe a movie that's coming later on down this list. Briefly, the movie is about a detective who's investigating a woman in the potential murder of her husband. But the movie really then just becomes about the relationship between these two characters and who's manipulating who, who's got the upper hand. I thought that I knew what the movie was gonna be, Oh, okay, we're going to do this and this, and we're going to end here. And that's not where we ended, and that's not where we went. And it very much became about, well, what is love, and what is using somebody? And can you love someone if you're using them? Can you use somebody if you love them? It's so complex, and these characters were so interesting. And the movie is gorgeous. As much as I was talking about Top Gun Maverick, Decision to Leave might be my favorite cinematography of the year. It's just a beautiful film and the things that were done in the editing of it, the way that scenes are tied in together. People are physically in places where they're not actually, but it's a way to tie two disparate people or two disparate characters together. It's a gorgeous movie, a beautiful film, and a really intriguing one. If you want kind of a slow burn crime mystery thriller drama, I don't think you're going to be disappointed with Decision to Leave, and I was happy that I was able to see it before I made this list. At number four is another international film. It comes to us from India, and that is RRR, which I sadly did not even see on a big screen this year. It was not playing in my home market for very long. It was earlier in the year, and I cannot wait for the chance, hopefully in the next two or three years, to see it in a theater with an audience. It was so unique, but it wasn't just about imagery. It's about friendship. It's about this long-spanning friendship between these two men, and it almost kind of has a departed feel at times with, well, they don't know who the other person is, person is and and you know how is that going to affect their friendship and then you have the music incredible music the cinematography the visual effects which some people would look at and say like well that's not photoreal. well tell me how making a menagerie of animals jumping out of a truck to a fancy party tell me how that's supposed to look photo real. I love the style of this movie and then Natu Natu which is an original song uh, in the movie, the dance number. I have watched this scene probably 15 times since I saw RRR. And if you're saying, "Oh, I don't know if I'd be interested in a 3-hour movie from India," I can promise you you will be with this one. I really, really enjoyed this movie and like I said, I look forward to seeing it with other movie fans in the near future theatrically because this is the kind of movie that if you see it in theaters in 10 years, it's just going to be as fresh as it was this year. At number three was an early front runner for my favorite movie of the year and it was only in this position because of two really great movies that came out after it and that's everything everywhere all at once. What an incredible grab bag of insanity this movie is. This was one of my best performing reviews on the channel this year for a reason because I think that people not only wanted to see this movie, wanted to talk about the experience of this movie with other people. I think that its success has already led to the kind of backlash and people saying, oh, well, you know, it's not that great. And there's not pressure on you to think that this is one of the best movies of the year. But there's also a reason why so many people think that it is one of the best movies of the year because it isn't just, again, empty flash and spectacle, although the editing and everything and the production design is so great with this movie, but at heart it is about family in a way that is deeper than any Fast and the Furious movies have been. It does more with family than 25 Fast and Furious movies. Michelle Yeoh is incredible in this movie, and I hope that she continues to be on track for potential Academy Award nominations. Huy Kwan, what a comeback story, and I would love for him to be nominated for an Oscar, and if he won, he would deserve it. It wouldn't just be because it was a great story. Stephanie Sue, Jamie Lee Curtis, both great supporting performances. You will not see another movie this year like everything everywhere all at once in a good way and it's another one that i look forward to watching because you could watch the movie literally frame by frame and pick up something new every time what a what a wonderful thing movies can be when you see a movie like this there is always something to love even in a stupid, stupid universe where we have hot dogs for fingers. At number two is a movie that I thought was going to be in my top spot for quite some time, but that ended up getting just edged out, and that's the latest film from Martin McDonough, The Banshees of Inisherin*, which on its surface seems like a very small movie, but in actuality, it's kind of big because it makes you understand what a small conflict in a tiny town can actually mean. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson play two friends until one day Brendan Gleeson decides that he doesn't want to be Colin Farrell's friend anymore. That's literally the inciting incident in the movie. Two hours you spent talking to me about the things you found in your little donkey shite that day. Well, it wasn't me little donkey shite. Was it? It was me pony shite, which shows how much you were listening. It's a hilarious movie, but it's also full of deep meaning and a lot of deep drama and some very dramatic moments. It really does feel like friends getting together to make a movie in the best kinds of ways. One of the most hilarious movies of the year, but also one of the most deeply meaningful. My brother told you, didn't he? That you'd be out in the road if you started talking stupid to me. He said creepy, not stupid. Well, you failed on both counts, haven't you? I've... And so we get to number one my pick for my favorite movie of the year and it's not one that i saw coming because i didn't particularly like the marketing and the build-up to this movie it did look a little bit pretentious to be honest and i know that that's a word that gets thrown around a lot but a movie that kind of felt like it had an overinflated importance about itself but it turns out that that was because that's one of the key themes of the movie. The movie's called Tar, and it is from writer-director Todd Field, featuring what I think is an incredible performance from Kate Blanchett. She plays a world-famous EGOT-winning symphony conductor and composer. And one of the smart things that this movie does is it sort of inducts you into the cult of Tar from the very beginning of the movie. So you basically are sort of sold on her innate ability and and the fact that she is this genius, this musical genius, and she knows everything. And then you kind of see, almost from her perspective, her life slowly start to fall apart. And then you start to question everything that you thought you knew or you assumed about this character. And then you, along with the other people in this movie, kind of start to shift your perspective on her as the movie unfolds. This, this is total fiction. In the post. It's a how-to-do scandal rag. No serious person reads it. If you had told me going into twenty twenty-two that my favorite movie of the year would be about a conductor and a sort of cancel culture related theme, I would have said that you were crazy. But again, what I love about this movie is it deals in the gray areas of these characters. It deals in subtlety and nuance. And the fact that there are things that happen in this movie that this character definitely does for which she's blamed, but then there's some things that she doesn't do that she's unfairly blamed for, and you understand how something can be two things at once. There's actually a scene that's my favorite scene, I think, in a movie this year. I didn't even notice until the second time I saw the movie that it was a one-shot scene. It's a 10-minute scene, basically, where Lydia Tarr, played by Kate Blanchett, is teaching a class, and she has a student who says that he doesn't like the composer Bach because he can't relate to the composer as a straight white male because that's not what his identity is. I would say Bach's misogynistic life makes it kind of impossible for me to take his music seriously. And there is this discussion between the student and the teacher where both of them are right and both of them are wrong in their own ways. And the discussion is about this sort of play, interplay between the two of them. They both cross lines. If Bach's talent can be reduced to his gender, birth country, religion, sexuality, and so on, then so can yours. But it's really not until you see how this whole movie plays out, and then you rewind in your brain, and you watch it a second time, that you understand just how wrong Lydia Tarr is in that moment, but also how she has this cult of personality where she can convince you that she's not. You wanna dance the mask, you must service the composer you got to sublimate yourself, your ego, and yes, your identity. The movie really does kind of cast a spell through its lead character onto you, the viewer, in the same way the character casts that spell over the other characters in the film. And it's a really remarkable piece of writing and a really remarkable piece of acting from Cate Blanchett. I've thought about Tar more than any movie that I've seen this year, and I saw it fairly late in the year. I didn't see it right when it came out in theaters. And for those reasons and the technical reasons and the character reasons, etc., Tar is my favorite movie of 2022, along with a list of other great movies, and I would recommend, of course, that you check out all of them, including the honorable mentions. And so that's it. That's my wrap-up of the year. What do you think, though? What were some of the movies that were your absolute favorites? What were some of the biggest disappointments for you? I love getting to the end of a year because very few of any of these movies were actually on my radar at the beginning of 2022, and that's the great thing about being a movie fan. Every year has these little surprises in store that you don't even know are coming that by the end of the year become integral parts of your life as a film fan. Thank you so much for watching this wrap up of the best and worst favorite and least favorite of 2022. I'll be back later this week to talk about a 2023 preview. So to see even more of the movies and some of the TV shows that are going to be coming out in 2023, that may well be on this list. I also have, of course, charts coming up to wrap up the year. I have a special coming up for my birthday on next week on January 4th that I'm very excited about and a lot more until then stay safe and I'll see you next time. Bye.